Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'm going to be keeping you company for the next hour and we've got some more great guests lined up for you today as we look at some stories making the news here in Ireland and around the globe. Coming up on today's show, it was once Europe's economic engine, but are the wheels just about to come off German's economy? Well, the Financial Times uh, are going to be with us today to talk us through what's happening in the German economy and what it might mean for all of us. Plus, where do you get your news and entertainment from nowadays? Well, Core Media are experts in this area and they're going to be joining me later in the show to talk about the mega trends in media and what it means for advertising here in Ireland in 2024. And finally, as International Women's Day approaches, we're going to try and unravel the mystery of imposter syndrome. It's often very much linked to women, particularly in business. But it's also said that 70% of people at some stage in their career or their lives face some element of imposter syndrome. So do you have it? How can you fix it? I'm going to be joined by two leading experts to discuss uh, the phenomenon and the potential cure for it. If you want to get in contact with us about any of the items on today's show, you can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Now, for our first item today, we're going to turn to the German economy because they're having very troubled times at the moment. One economic think tank reported that almost 40% of manufacturing uh, producers said that they had a lack of orders in January and the IMF even categorised the economy as the worst performing one in 2023. There's also a growing discontent among a lot of the large companies in Germany about the effects of the government's green energy policies. To discuss the economic climate and indeed a bit of the political climate there in Germany, I'm delighted to be joined now by Guy Chassan, who is the Financial Times Berlin Bureau Chief. Guy, thank you very much for joining us today here on News Talk. Not at all. Nice to be with you. Now, let's start off with that energy policy um, that you were writing about this week from Olaf Scholz. What's he actually trying to do? Uh, well, essentially, it, it, it's all about uh, switching to a carbon neutral economy. I mean, obviously, uh, a lot of advanced industrial economies are doing the same thing at the moment. But uh, Germany's goals are very ambitious. They're basically planning to go carbon neutral by 2045 and to derive 80% of electricity from wind and solar energy by 2030. Uh, And that's going to be quite a big task, considering that in 2021, they're only at 41%. So that's really going to be a massive task. And and, uh, industry is increasingly sort of concerned about this. They just think that, um, you know, the goals are too ambitious and uh, they wonder where their energy is going to come from in, say, the next five to seven years. Mm. I, mean, uh, I mean, the problem is really with Germany, it's kind of unique among many countries in that it's uh, phasing out nuclear and it's phasing out coal uh, at more or less the same time. It's just, it's just finished phasing out nuclear and coal will be phased out probably by about 2030. Um, and so that is creating a sense of alarm among many big industrial consumers of energy where they're just sort of thinking, where is my energy going to come from uh, in, say, 2030? Yeah, and of course, this is obviously making the um, current supply very expensive. But um, when the war in Ukraine started, Guy, I mean, I sensed that, that, that there was um, a pivot in the German energy policy kind of 
kind of pulling back away from um, the closing of the nuclear plants, the closing of the coal mines. Has something changed in that? Because, you know, the early assessment of how they dealt with the energy crisis from a supply side uh, was quite good. So what has changed? Well, I mean, essentially, people thought at the beginning that uh, the energy crisis was just so acute that uh, there would be a U-turn on on the nuclear policy, for mm. example, uh, and that, you know, Germany would uh, sort of reconsider its plan to phase out nuclear power, which has really been driven by the Greens. Um, and uh, they didn't do that. They stuck to their timetable and they turned off the, the last remaining nuclear power plants uh, and uh, there was no rethink. Um and they also uh, then sort of started um, doubling down on coal as well, and basically saying, "Okay, we're going to we're going to bring forward our phase out of coal." Originally, it was going to be twenty thirty eight, and then they uh, brought it forward to twenty thirty. So, in a way, they've doubled down. Mm. They basically said, "You know, we're 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 going hell for leather, uh, all out for renewables." Um, and we're also going to push green hydrogen, which is really a big bet on the on a future technology, which is not really proven yet. Um, and uh, we're going to say goodbye to nuclear and coal. And a lot of countries are sort of looking at them and thinking, are you mad? I mean, uh, you know, why are you being so sort of um, absolutist about this? Um, but it, it, you have to say that actually the uh, expansion rates of wind and solar have really picked up, especially wind in the last few months. Uh, the German government has really, really pushed to um, reduce red tape and actually get these wind projects off the ground uh, much more quickly than they have been in the past. And um, we're seeing some results now. I mean, really, the pace of expansion of wind is is quite uh, impressive. Uh, so maybe they'll hit their goals. But, yeah. Um, that doesn't that doesn't stop industry uh, getting increasingly nervous. Um, and uh, you can understand why they are nervous. Yeah. I mean, you know, especially as Germany has a lot of energy intensive industries such as chemicals and they really, really need cheap energy. Yeah. Well, look, as you say, the Greens have held fast and their their policies are being uh, affected. We actually had a discussion on our programme last week about this very issue here in Ireland because we have a capacity issue on our grid, but we also and have very ambitious targets um, for uh, transitioning to a lower carbon society. But not the same scale of pace in the development of renewable energy. Although we have a Green Party in government, their policies are working. The practicalities of the policies aren't quite there yet. So Germany maybe don't have those issues in the way that we do. But I want to turn for a second to the economy because... If we're looking at this energy policy and seeing business is not entirely happy with the short term supply issues, I mean, the renewables will come on board eventually and come on stream eventually. Um, maybe you can look a little at the economy and how it performed last year. Was this a factor in that um, or is it a myriad of other things? Well, no, the energy policy is clearly a problem now uh, because we're seeing it in the numbers. I mean, um, you know, essentially, we, we saw real, real uh, turmoil on energy markets over the last couple of years when, you know, the flow of gas from Russia sort of dwindled to nothing. And, uh, you know, Russia, Germany used to get 55% of its gas imports from Russia. It was incredibly mm. disproportionately reliant on Russia. 
And then after the, the, the Ukraine war, that collapsed. And that was a real disaster for the German economy, especially for the, as I said, the energy intensive industries like, you know, glass making, ceramics, uh, plastics and sort of and chemicals and so on. Uh, and we've seen a real, uh, very, very sharp decline in industrial output from those particular sectors. Um, so, for example, generally, uh, there was a 1.5% decline in manufacturing but, but uh, last year, but actually it was much, much sharper decline in those um, industries I mentioned. Um, but also industrial orders fell 6% last year, exports uh, declined by 1.4%. Um, that doesn't sound like very much, but it's affected uh, the outlook very, very severely. And uh, the OECD, for example, has now uh, halved its uh, estimate for uh, German German economic growth this year to 1.1%, which puts it way below the OECD average of, of 3%. Uh, and really, you know, people are talking about Germany as the sort of sick man of Europe again, which uh, we haven't heard for more than 20 years. Um, and it, it really is, is, is quite worrying. I mean, everybody is worried about it. All the industry, uh, business associations, and many members of the government saying, you know, that, that this can't go on. We need to do something. Mm. So, um, as you say, they, they've got a, a multiplicity of problems there. Um, they've also got interest rates, high interest rates. They've got high energy costs. They've got declining exports. Do they have political stability? Um, is there a pathway out of this? Well, that is the big question. And I think that is the thing that is worrying people most of all at the moment. Um, I mean, for, for example, one economist uh, was quoted as saying the other day uh, that the level of political insecurity in Germany, according to polls, is now as high as it was in Britain during Brexit. Uh, and, and that is really saying mm. something because, you know, Germany is generally seen as a bit of a sort of, uh, you know, anchor of stability in the Eurozone and in Europe generally. And now I think that is lost. We have a very, very fragile coalition in power at the moment. It's a three-party coalition made up of the, uh, the Social Democrats, the Liberals and the Greens. And the Liberals are fiscally very, very hawkish. So fiscally, they're quite conservative. Uh, they want to stick by Germany's very, very draconian kind of debt uh, restrictions, restrictions on new borrowing. It's called the debt break, which is inscribed in the German constitution. Uh, the other two parties want to loosen that or reform it, but they're sticking with the debt break. And um, they're totally opposed to uh, tax, uh, tax uh, increases. In fact, they have uh, actually advocated uh, a big tax cut, uh, which the other two parties reject. So there's all these ideological divisions between the, the three parties, and it's a big mess. I mean, they're pulling in all different directions right now. There's no, the, the, the centre cannot hold. Um, and Schultz, as Olaf Schultz as chancellor, is not really considered strong enough to really, you know, provide that uh, centre that can actually um, keep the whole thing together. Um, and is there a sense that yeah. they might be heading to to the polls? Will they hold, or like is 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 this is the issue too critical for them to to actually abandon the government? I don't think anyone expects that to happen uh, because the German political system is very complicated. It doesn't really allow for uh, governments to fall apart. They almost have to cling to each other and keep going. Um, it, it constitutionally, it's quite tricky to engineer the fall of a government. Obviously, that was you know, these were changes that were brought in after the the, the Third Reich, when uh, basically, uh, you know, in the pr previous to that, the Weimar 
uh, republic when basically, you know, governments were constantly falling and being replaced and stuff. So they wanted to get away from that. And the result is it's very, very difficult <laughs> yeah, to, uh, to bring down the government. Well, yeah, um, but the stability uh, there, I suppose, is, a, is an important question for yes. them. I just wanted to ask you something about um, Germany, I suppose, in a, in a wider global context. As you've referenced there a couple of times, well, we tend to think of Germany as the engine um, of Europe, you know, um, the driver, the stable one. Now now looking at it with the wheels coming off its economy, just from a geopolitical perspective, though, looking from outside, how um, are they affected by the geopolitical bigger landscape in terms of the US and China? And how is that affecting them? Well, um, that's also really compounding, in a way, the uh, sense of insecurity you're having at the moment, because um, you know, the German business model is very much predicated on the security guarantees provided by the US. And, um, you know, for decades now, they've relied on the kind of umbrella uh, that the, the US has, uh, mm. has provided, especially when it comes to nu- nuclear uh, protection. And um, with, with Trump possibly coming in and having a second term as president, the, the, the anxiety levels are really going off the charts now really? uh, in Germany because they really worry that that shield, you know, that umbrella, the nuclear umbrella, um, might uh, somehow, uh, you know, be, 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 be somehow disappear and that America's increasing isolationism under a, a possible future Trump administration um, could accelerate. Um they also are worried about China. China is the manufacturing yeah. side, I suppose, is, yes. is huge for that from a car perspective. Yeah, absolutely. It's a massive market for them. And of course, you know, one of the big problems Germany faces at the moment is that the, the Chinese are kind of eating their lunch. Um, the Chinese uh, car producers are, are flooding Europe with cheap electric vehicles. Uh, and the, the German um, car companies can't really compete, or at least they're finding it very hard to compete. Mm. Uh, they're bringing out their own models. But really, I mean, the, the Chinese are making enormous inroads. And of course, you know, that's in Europe, but in China as well. You know, the, the Chinese market is increasingly dominated by domestic producers. And that's a disaster for, for, for German uh, car companies like Volkswagen and Audi and Mercedes-Benz. What's kind of surprising about all that is how ill-prepared or future-proofed they are for things like that. But, but before I let you go today, I just want to ask you a final quick question, if I could, on um, the rise or the position of the far right in Germany at the moment. Can you just give us your assessment of where that's at as we head into the European elections? Yeah, I mean, that is uh, a very, very important factor in all of this as well, because part of the reason for the political uncertainty at the moment is that the, the, the horror people are feeling at the rise of the far right, the alternative for, for Germany, the AFD, is doing incredibly well in the polls. It was uh, about 24% uh, until quite recently. It, it, it suffered a bit of a decline in the last few weeks, and that's attributed to uh, these revelations that members of the party and functionaries of the party met with extreme right-wing radicals to discuss uh, a plan to uh, essentially deport millions of people from Germany, including people with German passports. And that was uh, an enormous shock to uh, Germans. Uh, I don't know if you've seen, but in the past few weeks, there have been enormous demonstrations against the far right in in uh, many, many German cities. It's quite a phenomenon, really. Absolutely. And I think people, people were just horrified yeah. uh, by these revelations. And I think 
that has really disturbed people. And as a result, the AFD has seen a, a bit of a slump in the polls, but it's still doing really well. Yeah, proof positive if we ever needed it that we're living in extraordinary times. But Guy, thank you very much for taking this time to give us those fascinating insights. That was Guy Chassan, the Berlin Bureau Chief at the Financial Times. Guy, thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. Now, where we get our media from is having a huge impact on jobs and advertising here in Ireland and around the world. Find out what's in store for the media landscape in 2024 right after this short break. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, so much has changed in the way we get our news and entertainment from. And those changes affect how advertisers decide how to spend their budgets, whether it's TV, radio or the brave new world of online. I don't even know if online is considered the brave new world anymore, but I'm happy to welcome Colm Sherwin, who's Chief Digital and Investment Officer with CORE. You've just published your advertising revenue outlook for this year. Colm, you're very welcome. Thanks for having us on. Now, Colm, this always fascinates me every year. Um, I suppose uh, understanding where people get their information from and their news and their entertainment, it affects all of us, really. But just to put a little bit of context on it, um, the world that that you're living in, that I'm living in, that the listeners are in, um, we're technically in recession. Inflation is easing and we're expecting that interest rates hopefully will go down in the second half of the year. But in that landscape, is the media advertising world increasing um, and how do you think it's going to go in 2024? So we believe in 2024 that the advertising revenue uh, will grow by 4.1%, making it worth over €1.5 billion um, for the year ahead. The majority of that growth we see happening across digital, where we see a growth of 7.85%. And within digital, the fragmentation of TV and money moving from TV into online VOD uh, will continue. And at the same time, social media outlets will continue to grow. Predominantly, the growth when it comes to social media is driven by TikTok. TikTok came realistically into our lives 2018 and 2019. And it's been a bit of a slow burner in relation to advertising because uh, advertisers have often struggled to use the platform. It wasn't as simple as using Meta, uh, Facebook and Instagram, where you could just take, we could say, a 30-second or a print ad and drop it onto the platform. TikTok, you've had to be a lot more integrated. You've had to be a lot more uh, embracive. uh, And you're communicating often to a younger audience. Mm. So there's big growth there. Yeah. So just to go back a little bit for the the, pe- the people like me who are not necessarily immersed in your world, VOD is video on demand. Yes, so that's yeah. really what you mean about one of the, the practical examples maybe uh, to illustrate that is we saw earlier in the week suggestions that Rupert Murdoch might leave the TV talk side of his um, um, that TV show he has and, and, and go over to YouTube solely. So that's a that's a real sort of indication that those what traditional TV channels and stuff that we would be used to are maybe on the wane. And younger people don't start out like that, do they? They start out on TikTok. They start out watching yep. YouTube. And that's where they the real shift is. So advertisers are following them, really. Yes. So, so, so what's happened probably over the last 10 to 15 years is obviously the TV landscape has become very fragmented. Um, and 10, 15 years ago, people would have spent three, four or five hours watching TV now, for all adults, the consumption is two and a half hours a day, which is still a quite a large number, but that skews predominantly towards an older demographic. If you look at a younger demographic, you're looking at around 52 minutes every single day. Wow. At 15 to 34. That's now, a big jump from six hours though, isn't it? It's, 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 it's a dramatic change. 
But the funny thing is, is with the fragmentation, mm. what has started to happen, say YouTube historically was, was on your mobile phone and um, Netflix was on your tablet. Now what started to happen to those guys is they're actually starting to pivot back to the TV screen. That's such a good point that you can actually watch YouTube on your telly now that you wouldn't have considered that before. But, yeah, so, so, like they predominantly have massively disrupted the TV industry. And now what's actually started to happen is they're actually starting to behave like TV stations. So a good a good indication of this, if you look at Netflix, yeah. Netflix in the last few weeks has done a partnership with the WWE globally. So they're going after live content. And no matter how much fragmentation has happened across the video landscape, live is still key. So we would have watched the rugby on the weekend. You would have watched the Man United game. And the numbers there are still phenomenal. And that's now what these guys are starting to go after, which makes the entire thing interesting. Just just to add to that is, is TV obviously has declined between 5 and 10% over the last 10 years, year on year. Last year, we saw a decline in consumption of 3%. So post-COVID, there was all this erratic behaviour in relation to consumption. Last year, it kind of slowed down. And it looks like TV over the next 12 months is one to watch because live sport, live content, local content in certain periods actually saw growth. So July, August, September last year for TV, we actually saw 3% growth. And even in January now, we've seen for all adults consumption a 10% growth. So maybe the decline of TV at the moment might have reached the bottom Mm. because of some of the investments in live content. And of course, this is going to be a massive sports year with the Olympics, um, the other, what's the the Euros, uh, yeah, in Germany and stuff. So, when um, those type of events are happening, who are the advertisers who kind of shift and pivot towards them? What are we going to be bombarded with in the summer because those those sporting events are happening? And I'm going to come back to the live other events yeah. that you mentioned there because I'm very interested in why TV had increased. So, so when there's any of these big events, in general, we probably ask three or four main questions. Is Like I'm a massive sports fan, so the first question you're asking is, are we in it? <laughs> so, so unfortunately, Stephen Kenny, we, we all know what happened with the Irish soccer Let's team. Let's just so, move on from that. So we're quickly. not in the Euros, <laughs> um, but we are in the Olympics. And yeah. there's a lot of hype around the Olympics and there's potential of us winning medals on the track versus mm. just always winning it in the boxing. So there is a lot of excitement in that space. The second question we would ask is, when is it on? So the, the Euros and the Olympics are on across June, July and August. And, and like any industry, June, July and August are often quite slow times. So naturally, we will see an uplift uh, during that period, which obviously will be a positive um, for, for, for us. Um, and then the last question we we'll probably ask is, is just around the advertising side is, is these uh, events are so big. Often what happens is major global, like the likes of your Coca-Cola, your McDonald's, globally would do a deal with UEFA or do with the Olympics and then they would have to implement it locally. So because of those three reasons, we would see a big uplift in, in in spend. So you see those big brand sponsors anyway for sure and then they'll localise it um, with Irish accents or whatever they do. But <laughs> um, then the other things that they tend to advertise around sports event, what are they like TVs? Is it, well, I don't know what, uh, loans for travelling? What, what type of other no, so things? See, 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 sports, because we get so many people watching it live it, it doesn't matter what product is in there. So you actually would have seen historically like a sports product in a sports uh, uh, programme. Like realistically, why advertisers need to be present there is because of the reach mm. that happens. And probably a really good example is the 2022 World Cup, which is in Qatar. Of course, a different time of the year. Yeah, and, and what was interesting then was obviously before that, you had people kind of going, are we going to watch it? Should advertisers be near it? Should the players even be there? 
But that happened in the busiest period of the year, Christmas. Of course. And if you're an advertiser, realistically up to a point, you had no other option but to be there if you wanted to reach mass audiences. Because realistically, if people are watching, say, a World Cup game where you have 500,000, a million people, it means they're not somewhere else. Mm. And, and people didn't have many options of not somewhere else mm. at that stage. And even within the radio, like an awful lot of the content the next morning is around the games, whether it's a sports programme or not a sports programme. That's right. Let's look at some other ways that people are getting their, their media from. Let's maybe separate it into two things. What about, let's take entertainment first, a little bit other than the TV. Um, what kind of platforms are doing well or is there a way to split out the demographics? When it comes to, to, to entertainment, realistically for the youngest demographic is, is social media, is, is phenomenal. Like TikTok is the fastest downloaded app ever in the history like of, of, of all those different apps. Um, and the problem that, that, as I said previously, that advertisers face is they've struggled to navigate it because they need to acclimatise. And sorry, that's the, the, I suppose that's the question I was trying to ask you is from an advertising perspective, how do they get into that space? Because this is where we start to see all the what influencers where they need, uh, what is it, um, you know, authentic people talking about things to help them promote their products rather than just inserting an ad for Kellogg's or something like. How do you actually insert yourself into that world of TikTok? Well, well one of the best examples is influencers. Is, is, is five years ago, if you mentioned influencer up to a point, it, you could say it was a dirty word. And, and now it's gone mainstream. And a big business for them. Yeah, but it, it, it's a massive, massive business. And up to a point, it's got better regulated and, and you're seeing more controls. But again, the irony, similar to what's happened with the Netflix, is an awful lot of the big influence you see on radio, or you listen on radio, or you hear on TV, actually started on TikTok. Right. So, so, so. so they're migrating and progressing into what would have been perceived as traditional. Traditional. Yeah. traditional. And we, we were even at an event last week, say, RTE, and they were announcing their strategy for how they're going to um, they're going to um, basically target younger demographic across their player. And they're just bringing influencers who live and breed on TikTok mm. and taking them and basically making programming. And then at the same time, they're putting the content on RTE, but they're also putting the content on YouTube. Yeah, let's stop talking about RTE. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. So actually, do you know, one thing that I'm, I'm sort of in danger of is always pigeonholing this into to demographics and, and, and talking about younger people when we're talking about social media. But um, my sister at, at Christmas, uh, I was watching her. She was watching uh, some Netflix documentary on her, her, her phone and she's yeah. in her early 60s. Hello, Jennifer. Early 60s. <laughs> and she was quite happily sitting there. Like So it's not just younger people who are on that chain their behaviour there, there, there is an element of the older generation as well Well, The, 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 the biggest thing that happened uh, throughout the pandemic in relation to media consumption is audiences that normally wouldn't behave with technology started behaving with te- technology so, so we saw massive increases in people having smart TV so if you go out to buy TV today you've no other option to buy a smart TV and then to add that people started using it like a smart TV mm. So, so, so if you look at my mom, for example, um, I won't say where she is because she'll kill me. She, she would be on RTE. She, she, she'd be on, I won't say RTE again, actually. She'd be on Virgin. She'd be on she'd be, she'd be listening to News Talk, wouldn't she? <laughs> she'd be listening to News Yeah, she would. But, but, but on the player, she would then click in and watch Netflix. Mm. And five years ago, that option wasn't there. And now that option is there. Mm. And we're seeing big, big growth. Now, obviously, they are the older demographic is a few years behind the younger demographic in relation to that usage. But very quickly, that's yeah. increasing. So. 
One other area now we want to look at uh, is radio, okay? Because that's obviously a huge interest to everybody here in News Talk. And uh, just look at that um, juxtaposition between radio and podcasts. Somebody said to me the other day, sure, anyone can make a podcast, but not everybody should. So how is that splitting out? Are people kind of choosing podcasts more because they can do it in their own time and, you know, pick pick more selectively or is radio still big? Well, well, well first of all, is 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 up to a point radio is booming, so again, I, I hate referencing COVID <laughs> and the pandemic, but if you go back during the pandemic, because of the reach and frequency of radio, if you were putting COVID messaging out there, the government heavily put money into radio stations. Mm. After that is the natural assumption it would have declined. And that hasn't been the case. And if you look at the latest radio centre stats, is is the investment in radio has continued to grow. If you look at the latest JLLR stats, the, the listenership has has continued to grow. Yes, can I just point that News Talk's listenership went up as did this programme, so there's a plug. <laughs> to add to that, like for years now, I probably shouldn't say this on the radio, for years people have said Ireland potentially has too many radio stations and now they're saying we've too many podcasts. Mm. Like if you look at the revenue between yeah, 157 million on radio, up 1.8% this year, and digital audio is 18.6 million. So wow. digital audio is still only 10 to 11% okay. of it. Yeah. Now, what I feel about podcasts at the moment is I think it's an entry to the wider world. So an awful lot of people creating podcasts would also go out and they might have an event in the Olympia. They might be involved. That's right. It's in other very linked to events, isn't yeah. it? It's, it? It seems to be like to me, there is a lot of podcasts out there and I'd listen to an awful lot of podcasts. But at the same time, it doesn't look like there's loads and loads of money to be made right now, even though it is grown by 18%. But it's certainly an area that you can expand on and you can move into another spaces. But not necessarily where the advertising is at the moment. No, no. So advertising, so, so all of our clients would heavily invest in it. And similar to the way we would run a video campaign, younger demographics, we would skew our splits in relation to radio versus digital um, higher. So we might spend 30% of an audio campaign on podcasts where in older demographic, y- y- you might spend 10. But remember, it's all becoming very blurred. Like yes, some of the biggest yes. T- t- TV, or some of the biggest... Uh, podcasts and shows are actually this show if, if you think about it yeah, and that's where it's all getting qu- quite muddled <laughs> Yeah one of the things there you mentioned was government spending and, and I had a look very briefly at the Northern Ireland spend and um, it, there was a, a, a lack of activity there if you could if you could put it that way but I guess now that the institutions in Northern Ireland are back and, and running again you might see an increase in that for sure like Yes so, so, so realistically the, the Northern Ireland market is worth about about two hundred million uh, pounds or so. It, it declined over the last few years, similar in line with potentially everything that happened up the north. Unfortunately, mm. uh, and an awful lot of that was down to government spend. Uh, we are expecting, like we we if if what happened last Saturday, or two Saturdays ago didn't happen, we wouldn't be saying the figures that we're currently saying. So we do feel government spend will increase. And you can see on the back of um, Richie Sunak and, and the DP and Sinn Féin, uh, their communication around the government spend is going is to be uh, substantially increased. We naturally would see that some of that moving into advertising. Okay, so a, a bright year ahead in 2024 for the advertisers out there anyway. For us, um, very positive. The second half of the year, last year, uh, overall, the industry was up around ten percent, um, and and that has continued um, in in into this year. The only key difference is, is how our industry works. Is the second half of the year is bigger than the first half mm. of the year, which is a good bit of positivity. Yeah. And just very briefly, because time is on us, and my producer is going to kill me. But elections do they affect the the spend, or will they, uh, you know, have a, an impact on your planning for twenty twenty four? First of all, yes. So naturally, you would see an increase in spend. For for me. 
um, in the context of a broader outside of Ireland, 50 elections this year, um, how social media is used over the next 12 months could be scary. And for us with our clients, we always talk about making sure your ads appear against tried and trusted news sources. And that is key. And, and there's numerous studies out there to prove having your ads appear. There. So it is certainly a watch out for the next 12 months. Absolutely, Calm. That's almost nearly a, a separate discussion. We'd certainly love to have you back to, to go through that in a bit more detail as those elections happen. That's Colm Sherwin, who's Chief Digital and Investment Officer with CORE. Thank you very much for coming into us today. Thanks for having me on. This is News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson. Now, imposter syndrome, what is it and how do you get rid of it? Well, to tell us all after the break, I'm going to be joined by two experts to examine the symptoms and the cures. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, for our final item today, take a quick listen to this. Women systematically underestimate their own abilities. If you test men and women and you ask them questions on totally objective criteria like GPAs, men get it wrong slightly high and women get it wrong slightly low. Men attribute their success to themselves and women attribute it to other external factors. Why does this matter? Boy, it matters a lot. Because no one gets to the corner office by sitting on the side, not at the table. And no one gets the promotion if they don't think they deserve their success or they don't even understand their own success. That was, of course, uh, Cheryl Sandberg speaking about the term imposter syndrome, which actually first arose in 1978, long before Cheryl used it. Imposter syndrome is probably something that you've heard of and a lot of people uh, listening at home may have even experienced it at some point in their lives. But what is this phenomenon and how can we get around it? Well, I'm joined now by neuroscientist and psychologist Sabina Brennan and Louisa Meehan, who is the owner of Woodview HRM. Sabina and Louisa, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Sabina, I might kick off with you, please, if I if I may. Uh, we heard Cheryl Sandberg uh, talking about imposter syndrome there. That's certainly when it came into my radar, really. But it, it is a, a much older term than that. You might just talk to us about when it first came about and what it is. Yeah, I think the first thing to point out is that it's not officially recognised as a, you know, a mental health condition uh, in any of the clinical manuals. Um, it doesn't even make it into the APA dictionary, which is the uh, American Psychological Association dictionary. But it is a phenomenon described by um, a researcher, as you said, um, back in 1978. Now, the original research really was... Um, uh, what we'd call qualitative research. So um, after identifying a, a particular experience herself and amongst um, uh, college students, etc., uh, herself and a colleague decided to do um, some research into it. And they studied 150 se- successful women um, who were prone to this experience, which is an internal experience of um, being a phony or a fraud intellectually and living in fear that you might be found out. Somebody will discover that you're there by mistake or you're not as as people think you are, etc. And I think a lot of us have experienced that. Um, and I, I think that's one thing that's also important to note. Since their study, um, you know, imposter phenomenon has 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 been um, studied in various populations and groups um, and is common in, you know, uh, students and academics, professionals, 
uh, you know, in situations with high stakes like medics, minority groups, um, women in male dominated fields or people starting out in new roles. In fact, two or three, two out of three people in those contexts would experience this phenomenon, which kind of leads me to, to, to sort of feel that, um, you know, it's a, a relatively common experience as opposed to some sort of syndrome, as the word is frequently um, used alongside uh, the term imposter. And indeed, um, more recently, some researchers in 2021 have questioned, um, I suppose, in a way, the validity of the term in, in the context that uh, it sort of puts the uh, the source of it or almost the blame of imposter syndrome within the individual uh, because it ignores actual barriers faced by people in those groups like inequity, uh, racial bias and those sort of societal and cultural mm-hmm. factors. So I think it's important, you know, it, it's kind of a combination of both. And I think the key thing as well to explain is that, you know, if you're thinking certain thoughts, if you have a specific narrative, um, you know, you're you're perfectly capable your brain is perfectly capable of rewriting that story and that's the real positive yeah um you mentioned the the imposter phenomenon and uh, the person who crafted this was a, a professor called Pauline Clance and I read an interview with her recently where she's quite frustrated that it's become a syndrome and something that is now largely a lot associated with women who are high achieving in business when, as you say there, it's not something that just affects women in business. It affects women in their personal lives, but also men in business and their personal lives as well. So, Louisa, can I just bring you in here as somebody who works in HR and, you know, um, sees a lot of people coming in and out from day to day. Um, Sabina has given us the very kind of clinical assessment of what it is, but what does somebody feel if they are someone who is affected by uh, imposter phenomenon. Let's stick to that phrase. Yeah, and I think I think look, that's quite a, an interesting piece. I never considered the word syndrome before. Um, look, I think this is something that pretty much everybody that I've worked with has experienced. The vast majority have a, at one time or another, and it is that sense of Have you ever been in a room or doing a job, doing something where you keep looking over your shoulder, going, "Someone's going to come and tell me that I'm not good enough. They're going to come along. They're going to find me out. There's just no way that I am the person to be doing this." that there must be somebody smarter or better out there or everybody else seems to have uh, their stuff sorted and they seem to be more on top of their game than I am. Um, And I think we all experience that, whether it's at work or at home or a combination or at different phases, we all have a moment in time where we're like, okay, somebody else has everything sorted in a way that we couldn't possibly do or we don't have it. Um, And for me, I think some of it comes back to social media and that sort of sense that we have nowadays of perfection and everything being a particular way Um, and life is messy and complicated and difficult at times for everybody Mm. irrespective of the the face that they show but when you're not surrounding yourself with people who are being honest about their experience or you're not seeing the honest version because they're only showing the public face then it can leave people feeling like they're maybe not good enough or they're not doing it right or everybody else is doing it better. Um, And I think that sense of self-doubt is is very common. Mm. Um, Certainly with the the women and the men that I work with, it's something that I would hear at different different times for different people. 
um, depending on situations, but it would be very, very common. Well, that's good to know that if you're out there and you're listening to this and you do feel like that, at least you're not alone and there's there's other people who are dealing with it regularly and there's things you can do about it. Sabine, I'm just going to bring you back in here to recap. So feelings of self-doubt, uh, of being exposed, um, that your success is uh, being attributed by yourself to external factors. You're seeking perfection, as uh, Louisa referred to there, maybe sometimes from things like social media. And basically all of this is undermining your own achievements. Is there any neurological effect on the brain from having those feelings that can actually perpetuate patterns of negative behaviour? Yeah, I mean, anything we do experience or any way we behave impacts on our brain because our brain is constantly changing and it's our life choices and our experiences that shape it and change it. So, um, yeah, if we take self-doubt as being kind of one of the key components of um, this syndrome, um, the brain is plastic um, and, and that just means that the brain can change with learning and it can reorganize itself by forming new Uh, neural connections throughout our lives. Um, And so persistent self-doubt can actually reinforce neural pathways that are associated with negative thinking, making those particular thoughts more likely to occur again in the future. So the more you engage in self-doubt, the stronger those pathways become. And that means that in in, a future situation, that's going to be your sort of first uh, response. Secondly, um, you know, the stress response in in the brain can be activated by self-doubt. And that includes things like releasing uh, cortisol. Um, And now if you become chronically stressed, there's nothing wrong with stress per se because you need it to rise to challenge in life, etc. But when it becomes chronic, and poorly managed, those high cortisol levels can affect your brain function, particularly in areas like the hippocampus and your frontal lobes, which are involved in memory and emotional regulation. And and really then, you know, it can start to cloud your ability to problem solve or to think rationally. And I think that's important in the context of this imposter syndrome, Mm. because a lot of the time you're not thinking Uh, um, you know, uh, in a rational way, you know, most of the time you have the qualifications, you're capable, people have picked you because they've observed your behaviours, etc. But through patterns of behaviour, you kind of jump to that old way, oh my God, I'm not good enough, can I actually do this? Mm. Was it a fluke the last time? So yes, everything that you do really um, interacts, you know, and changes the way your brain functions. But that key, that's the key point to change. You know, change can be hard and challenging at first, but once you actively engage in trying to think more positively or engage in more self-compassionate thought and confidence, um, the more that will become your more instinctive response or your more lightly response, to use a more appropriate term. Louisa, that's an interesting word that um, Sabina used there, compassionate, be more compassionate with yourself. I think sometimes people are very hard on themselves and when they're achieving things and the self-doubt creeps in, it's important to remember that if you've achieved something, you've you've found yourself in a position that maybe you didn't expect to or feel you deserve, somebody else did. Um, yeah. But I wanted to ask you whether in, in your line of work, um, that that issue of men versus women again and I, I keep coming back to this one I mean we, we in recent times have subscribed this feeling a lot to women but maybe perhaps it's because more women 
are entering the workforce or coming into a higher level of the workforce in male dominated environments. So, for example, we're seeing more women, uh, hopefully on boards, more and more, uh, more women CEOs. So maybe it's something to do with the increase of women um, or is it something to do with the fact that women are more likely to be able to express a feeling of either fear or inadequacy over men? What's your view on that? I think there's probably a combination of both. Um, I think there, like, there's certainly evidence out there that would demonstrate that that men in the workplace would typically be a little bit more confident than women, certainly when it comes to stuff like putting themselves forward for new opportunities or, or jobs, that those kinds of situations. Women are, are wanting to be much more self-assured before they even put their name forward than men. And there's a lot of research out there in relation to that. But I think when people are in the job, so let's assume that you're in the job and you're talking to people in spite of ability. Um, I, you know, from the people that I've worked with over the years, I would see fairly equal amounts of self-doubt from both men and women, but they presented very differently. Mm. And as you say, I think women are much, I was going to say that they're much more capable of being vulnerable in the workplace and they are and they aren't, depending on the situation, because they if they're in a male-dominated area, they can feel that they have to hide that but they are still more likely, whether it's with somebody at work or a friend outside of work or a trusted mentor that they have, they're still more likely to have some trusted person where they can say, I don't think I can do this, I'm not good enough, somebody else is better or whatever it might be, and have someone go, no, you've got this. You know you can do it. I've seen you do it. I know how good you are. Um, you're amazing. Look how fantastic you are. And that sort of sort of sense of building each other up, I think women are far more inclined to do that and when they reach out and they say, I'm struggling with this, they're far more likely to get a, a really positive, you know, response once they ask the right people. Mm. Um, I think men are more fearful, from my experience, and this isn't based on research, but just from my experience, men are more fearful of showing that level of vulnerability in the workplace. And when they do, they sort of have a bit of a different response. There's a bit more banter, a bit more sort of joking about it, or, or their peers go, Asher, you know your grands, or... What are you talking about? You know, there's a bit of a different response to it. It's a, a more, you've, I don't know, maybe sort of that locker room chat, but not in, not in, a, in an inappropriate way, but in a supportive way mm. um, approach, as opposed to a real emotional supportive um, cheerleader type approach. So there's mm. there's different approaches out there, but just because women perhaps talk more about something like this doesn't mean that they're experiencing it more. And I think that's really important to get out there because, uh, you know, from, from the individuals that I work with, I don't really see a huge difference in terms of who experiences these kinds of feelings in the workplace. I just find that they are very different in how they present it and discuss it. Mm. That's very interesting. Sabina, can I bring you back in here? Um, sure. You mentioned earlier that for, on a positive side, you can change this, you know, um, you, you can, there are things you can do to, to deal with this issue. Um, but I, I had a conversation with someone last week and I said, you know, you need to be more confident. And she said, yeah, but how? And I actually don't know the answer to that. How do you make someone more confident if they're not confident in themselves? I just said, you just need to be more confident. Yeah. How, how do you, how do you yeah, just be yeah, more confident? Like, yeah. It's like you need to relax more. Yeah. I'm definitely not relaxed now as soon as somebody says that. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I, need... I, I just, yes, I can give tips, but I just want to say as well, though, I mean, we talk about imposter syndrome. What I think is more dangerous and, and less common 
more dangerous in the workplace is the actual imposters, <laughs> those who actually pretend that, you know, knowingly pretend that they can do this or actually, you know, have a lack of awareness of what their own. Sabina, we, we should are. actually have an entire section some other day on the delusional in the workforce, yes, which is, is another step forward. But anyway, let's go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But basically, anyway, yes. Look, confidence is not, you know, a static trait. And, and you know, it is context dependent. You can be very confident, you know, as a parent at home, but lack confidence on a sports field or in work. Um, it's not st- static and, and, you know, it can be cultivated and developed over time. Um, I, I think if it's, you know, you're thinking about specific situations, it's good to actually, you know, take some time to look at, well, where did that notion come from? You know, where where did that idea come from about, you know, I whatever, you know, that leads to this lack of self-confidence. And, you know, our brain just makes up stories about who we are and how good we are at things based on information from lots of different sources, many of which could be from when we were four years of age or, you know, from just one person's comment. So I think it's good to kind of, you know, go back and analyze where something came from and actually question its validity. Um, Engaging in positive self-talk, I um, mentioned already, and that is really, I mean, the brain is biased towards the negative because something negative could endanger us um, from, you know, a survival Mm. Perspective. Whereas missing something positive, it's just a missed opportunity, you know. And the first function of your brain is to is to keep you alive. Um, setting real and clear, clear, realistic goals is really, really important because you know, and 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 specific actions because when you attain a goal, you know, actually it activates the reward centers in your in your brain, and you can get a sense of accomplishment, which can contribute to self. Um, to self-confidence. Uh, Visualising success, visualisation actually is a really powerful tool. There's a lot of psychological research um, behind it. Um, even things like Madonna was right, you know, strike a pose. Body language really, really does um, matter. You know, if you hold yourself up, hold your shoulders straight, it can help you feel stronger um, in the face of uh, uh, adversity. This one is one I struggle with. I don't know whether it's a very Irish thing, but, you know, to learn to accept compliments. I don't know about you, but if I get a compliment, I, I, I don't know, I, I have to either throw it away or say, oh, this whole thing, I got that in pen. Yeah, I, know, it's, it's, I think it's a particularly unique Irish trait, actually, Sabina, um, <laughs> that we, ju- we just can't do it. But Look, this is a, a, a very serious issue for men and for some women. And look, you've given us some great tips there at how we could deal with it. But I'm sure we're only really uh, touching the tip of the iceberg and it's something we will definitely come back to again. But for now, I'm afraid we have to leave it there. That was neuroscientist and psychologist Sabina Brennan and Louisa Meehan, who's owner of Woodview HRM. Ladies, thank you very much both for joining me today. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, that's all we have time for this week, folks. Hopefully you enjoyed the show. And just a reminder that while we broadcast at this time every Sunday morning at nine o'clock, we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app or wherever you get your podcasts from. And my thanks once again to all of today's guests for giving us their very valuable time and their insights. The producer of Taking Stock today was John Fardy and Simon Keane with Stephen Daunt on research and Hugo De Silva Scott on sound. If you have any comments on any of today's items, please please do email us at takingstockatnewstalk.com. We love hearing from you and getting your views. Anton Savage is up next with all of your Sunday newspapers and lots, lots more. But for now, from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.